Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Behold the Lamb of God. This year, in celebration of Advent, we will be focusing on some aspect of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. I'm going to be concluding our Advent series, at least for the Sundays. We'll, we'll kind of wrap it up on Christmas Eve. But uh, today I'm going to be talking about where lambs are kept, where the lambs are kept. And uh, again, I'm not going to read the whole text. We're going to be looking at Luke 2, 8 to 15. We've already read it a couple of times this morning. It's one of the things I like about Advent. We, we read the Scripture a lot during this time. And so we've already read it, so I'm not going to reread the same text again. But we're going to be going through Luke 2, 8 to 15, and I'll have some of those verses up as we go. Um, I've been reminded over the last several weeks, a couple of times, Linda and I uh, have the privilege of getting to keep our grandkids a lot, and uh, it reminds me how much young kids like to hear the same story over and over and over again. Have you ever noticed that? They never get tired of seeing the same movie. I, since my kids were small, I mess with them and tell them it's going to end different this time. You know, this guy's not actually going to win this time, right? Because otherwise it's the same story. And they, they love to hear the story over and over again. But the stories really sink in. Um, we were keeping uh, Stefan Seamus's three girls a couple of weeks ago, and we had um, our Christmas tree up. And Kaylin, I didn't even understand what she was saying at first. She looked and she said, the angel on top of the tree. I said, that's right. And she said, the angel, he's the one that shut the lion's mouth. I was like, what? She said, yeah, remember, he shut the lion's mouth to keep him safe in the cave full of lions. I said, oh, Daniel, yes, that's right, honey. You remember, that's what the angel did do. And within a few days later, we had... Uh, Tim and Becky's for staying with us, and in the morning, uh, Josh and Owen woke me up, and we went downstairs, and they were both going on, and I was, it was before six, so I was a little groggy, and uh, they were going on something about Pharaoh, and then Moses, and they were recounting to me the whole biblical story of Pharaoh and Moses, which was to lead in saying, we want to watch the movie Prince of Egypt, uh, is what they were doing. And uh, they've been reading about Passover. But I was amazed at how much of the stories had really sunk in. And sometimes, you know, if we can allow ourselves to do that, we can have real joy. We were taking um, the, the four grandkids, uh, Tim and Becky's, out to watch Christmas lights. And on the way, uh, we had a DVD playing. It was old Bugs Bunny cartoons. And we got to laughing at that, and one of us, I won't say which, between Linda and I, it was Linda, was really getting into these old cartoons, was laughing and remembering and saying, oh, you remember this story, what's going to happen next? And the, the joy of doing that, and my wife's not here to deny it, so it was Linda that was of the mentality to really enjoy a Bugs Bunny cartoon as we were driving down the road. But the sad thing is, many of us adults lose that wonder. And we think, well, I've seen this story, and therefore, why, why watch it again? Why listen to it again? Or it loses some of the wonder. And so what we've really been doing the last couple of Advents is we're rehearsing the grand story. Last year, we spent the whole time looking at the story of creation and fall and redemption and kind of where we're headed. 
This year we've been looking at the story of the Lamb of God through Scripture to trace these great themes. And we've been even going along in our Advent devotional, uh, Behold the Lamb of God. I, I hope you're taking the time to read that. He does a great job of going over the story and reminding us and helping us to experience it fresh and new. And I want to encourage you to not give in to the cynicism of old age. Don't let the story become old. Let's remember and enjoy what God has done for us. Because here's the greatest thing. The story that we're rehearsing is true. This is real. This is what really happened, and it's the story of our salvation. So I'm going to begin today by reminding us kind of what we've gone over, the Old Testament roots of beholding the Lamb of God before we get to Jesus. Sometimes we kind of lose the wonder because we focus in on a couple of points and we've lost all the story that's gone before. But if you haven't paid attention to the story that's gone before, you don't really understand what's going on. And so if you remember, all the way back at the beginning, um, we were taken through by Jer to look at Abraham where we, we learned that God will provide for himself a lamb. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 8, uh, Abraham was going up the mountain, you remember, with Isaac, and he was going to sacrifice Isaac. And Isaac had said, Father, we've got fire, we've got wood, but where's the lamb? Which I can only imagine the pain in Abraham's heart to realize him thinking that, well, you've been called to be the lamb, my son. But Abraham responded and said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And we have to understand in a world where men sacrifice lambs for their sin, Abraham learned that God will provide for himself a lamb to take away our sin. It was not up to Abraham to provide the lamb. It was not up to Isaac to be the lamb. God himself was going to provide the lamb that was needed. If redemption was going to come for this broken world, it was going to be something that God was going to do, something that God was going to provide not humanity. And this established a deep principle in God's people. Right at the beginning, Abraham being the, the founder of the nation, this established a deep principle that salvation comes from the Lord and from his work, not from us and from our work. And then we move forward and we see the Passover. This was what uh, Scott taught us on. And in the Passover, we learn that when I see the blood, I will pass over you. In Exodus 12, you remember there's a story where there's been all of the plagues, and we come to the 10th and the worst plague where death is going to pass through the land, and every firstborn is going to die. From Pharaoh all the way down to a slave, there's going to be death. But God says this in verse 13, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike. And so the plague of death that was going to be striking Egypt was not going to strike the Israelites. But the Israelites' safety did not lie in their physical lineage or in their own righteousness, but in the protection afforded by the blood of the Passover lamb. Notice, God does not pass over because of something in the Israelites' He passes over because of blood that has been slain for them. Just as God had provided the lamb for Abraham, so too he's provided salvation for Israel through the blood of a spotless lamb. And so this deep principle 
is being established in God's people, that deliverance and salvation comes by the blood of the Lamb that is provided by God, not from our own righteousness or our work. God not only provided a lamb, but that lamb had to die in our place. And the story is continuing, and the people of God are understanding more and more. Now, we did not go over, just because of a lack of Sundays, how this got instituted in the sacrificial system for Israel. It was not just them hearing the story of Abraham that every Jewish child heard over and over and over again whether Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac or not and to hear that, no, God will provide for himself a lamb. It was not just that the children of Israel heard about Passover and then even reenacted that once a year and they said, well, God delivered us because he had provided the Passover lamb. And when that blood was there, we were delivered from the plague of death that was striking everyone around us. No, it was instituted and solidified and made concrete for the people of Israel by regular sacrifices that they made for sin. And it taught them that forgiveness came through shed blood. In Leviticus 17.11, where it is laying out all of the sacrificial system, God said, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. In the New Testament, the writer to Hebrews takes this up and says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so the sacrificial system was taking the principles that had been started with Abraham and solidified further and expanded with the Passover, and it's instituting them as the regular practice of Israel. And through the sacrificial system, God is providing lambs that are going to be slain so that the blood might cover Israel and his wrath would pass over for them. And you have to understand, this is like cement on those earlier stories. So the Israelites, it's settling in upon them that salvation comes from blood being shed to atone for sin, and that only God can provide that lamb uh, to cover us. And so salvation comes from the blood of the lamb, not from the sweat of our own works. And the people of God, for two millennia, had rehearsed these stories for 2,000 years. Think of that. As long and as far as we have been rehearsing the story of Christ, they had rehearsed the story of Abraham and Isaac. For as long as it's been since Rome fell, they had rehearsed the story and celebrated the Passover. And during that entire time, Day after day after day, they had seen lambs be slain to atone for and pay for their sin. Now, in the midst of this, you remember we had talked about King David, and that's what Ryan Jackson had taught us on last week. And we saw a particular episode in the life of David, Israel's greatest king, the founder of the Davidic dynasty, and the head, in fact, of the Messianic line. And one of the reasons we went over this story is David is the epitome of a great king. He is the gold standard by which all other kings are judged. He is so far head and shoulders above every other king. I mean, he is George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and pick whoever your number three is for you, all rolled up into one. David is as good as it gets. And in fact, the, the 
uh, the shepherd that was going to come is going to be a shepherd like David. And the Messiah that is going to come is going to be the Davidic king. Yet, even King David needed redemption. The man after God's own heart, and yet as we saw last week, he failed miserably. In a moment, he seized Bathsheba, and he cast his ethics, his morality, his walk with God to the wind. And David finds himself sinning from lofty heights of righteousness. He falls to the depths of depravity and sin. And this led to David's great confession of sin in Psalm 51. And in that confession, he not only owns his own sin, but he recognizes how deep his sin problem really goes. And this is something that we want to avoid. But notice what David says in Psalm 51, verse 5. David says this, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, David here is recognizing the depth of his own depravity. His sin ran to the depths of his being, and it began at the very moment he was conceived. This was no external thing. In other words, David's saying, you know, I would have thought this sin with Bathsheba was not the real David. Isn't that how we plead when we sin? See, that's not the real. The real me is the me at worship. It's some external guy that does that bad stuff. Now, I know y'all probably never said that. See, the real me is the guy that preaches, not the guy that thinks awful things, not the guy that uses his mouth to say things that ought not be said, right? That's what we want to do. But see, David's recognizing here, no, the real me was involved in the whole incident with Bathsheba. The real me saw and lusted. The real me sent and found out it was one of my best friends and my mighty man's wife. The real me continued the act and committed adultery. The real me tried to hide my sin. The real me brought Uriah back and tried to get him to think that my child was his child. The real me got Uriah drunk. And the real me knew that Uriah was so faithful I could put his death warrant in his own hand and he was too faithful to me to even open it up. David's saying that was the real me. And that's why salvation has to come outside of us. We, we can't work our own salvation because our problem is we are broken. Uh, he used in the, in the devotional one of the days this phrase that we are crooked deep down. One of the reasons I, I like this particular devotional, he's actually referencing a number of different uh, Christian songs that are out there. And the song Crooked Deep Down uh, is by a man named Derek Webb, who if you're familiar with Christian music, was the leader and founder of Cademan's Call. And Derek Webb wrote a song called Crooked Deep Down, and it goes this way. My life looks good, I do confess. You can ask anyone. Just don't ask my real good friends because they will lie to you. Or worse, they'll tell the truth. Because there are things you would not believe that travel into my mind. I swear I try and capture them, but I always set them free. 
It seems bad things comfort me. Good Lord, I am crooked deep down. Everyone is crooked deep down. But good Lord, I am crooked deep down. Everyone is crooked deep down. Everyone is crooked deep down. That's the message. And that's what's been learned. The reason God has to provide a lamb for himself is we're too crooked to do it or be it. The reason a Passover lamb has to be slain is if death is going to come for those who are crooked deep down, it will grab every one of us. The reason there has to be a sacrificial system and blood has to atone is we are crooked deep down and everything we do is tainted. And even if you're as good as King David, the day comes when you're honest and you look in the mirror and you realize, I am crooked deep down. Something is broken all the way down inside me. And so this is the background where we come to all that the kids were just singing a couple of minutes ago and reading to us. And in the New Testament, we are told, behold the Lamb of God, and we see the realization of all of those things I just rehearsed. Out of this background, angels come to the shepherds. The people who have rehearsed this story over and over and over again have seen their need for salvation. But at the point when the New Testament opens, there has been 400 years of silence. They've kept rehearsing the story. They've been looking for the Lamb of God to come and take away their sins, but it's been 400 years since the prophet has spoken in Israel. And for most of this time, they were under either the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. They had a brief period where they were under their own rulers who might have been worse than the Persians, the Greeks, or the Romans. Countless lambs had been slaughtered, and yet the true lamb had not come. The religious leaders that were supposed to shepherd and care for the people often crushed the people underfoot. They were more like butchers than they were like shepherds. And so the question that many of the people would have been wrestling with during this time is, God had provided a lamb and rescued Isaac and provided for Abraham, but has God forgotten me? And God delivered our forefathers in Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb, but has God forgotten me? And God had covered the sin of David, that great king who fell to such great depths of depravity, but has God forgotten me? And will he forgive my sin the way he forgave David's? And it's into that that the story bursts forth, and we see the shepherds, the angels, and the lambs. So I want to take a couple of minutes to kind of look at our text and see who these people are and how all of these strands are woven together. The shepherds, we read in Luke 2.8, that there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby and keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the amazing thing is we would think, given the background, that David, the greatest king, what had he been? A shepherd. And what is probably his most well-known psalm? 
Yeah, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And in fact, God spoke and said all the kings and the priests, he referred to them as shepherds. And God himself had said, I am the shepherd of Israel. So we would think that there would be no loftier profession than being a shepherd. But the fact is, shepherds were lowly, and they were oftentimes despised. Probably because, have you ever been around a sheep? Nobody's going to come out with a cologne next year that is owed to sheep. Okay? And if you're hanging out with sheep, you start to smell like them. You probably kind of be like them. And so shepherds are not very well thought of. They are not rich. They are not powerful. They are not people of influence. And in fact, by rabbinic law, the only sheep in the area around Bethlehem and Jerusalem at this time were probably intended as lambs to be slaughtered at the temple. You didn't, you didn't have that many sheep uh, and shepherds that were right around there in the environment of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. But ironically, and I don't know if you caught this in our reading this morning, the very work they were doing in raising the lambs that were going to atone for the sins of the people, that work was considered to make them unclean which is not the only thing. We see actually in the Old Testament, the priests had to face this. The very work they did to get the people's sins forgiven made the priest himself unclean. And so there had to be atonement for them for making atonement for the other people. And so they kept the lambs that cleansed, but they were unclean by doing so. These are the shepherds. Into this we read that the angels come. In verses 9 and 10, an angel of the Lord appears to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now, the reason they're terrified is shepherds uh, and angels are in great contrast with one another. Nobody saw shepherds and quaked, but everybody who saw angels quaked, okay? The first test when somebody tells you that an angel appeared to them is finding out if they wet their britches when the angel came. Because if they didn't, an angel didn't appear to them. Because universally in the scripture, I don't care who you are, they are on their face when the angel shows up. These are not your buddy. They are powerful, frightening presences. And so the angel shows up, and notice the shepherds are terrified. But the angel comes and says, don't be afraid. The amazing thing here is the angel is appearing not to rich and powerful in their great palaces, but to lowly shepherds out in the field. And the shepherds who are rightly terrified, but the angel assures them that he's come with good news. And that word good news, what do we call that? What's the other translation for that? The gospel. I bring you the gospel. Don't be terrified. And in fact, what does Jesus over and over again keep telling the disciples and people he's in contact with? What's the two words? Fear not. Don't be afraid. You remember the first time he meets Peter, the fisherman. What's Peter? Peter's response is, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus tells him, fear not. Rise up. Your sins can be taken away, and I'm going to teach you how to fish for men over and over again. And so the angel comes with the same message, and this gospel, he tells them, is not just for them. It is good news of great joy that will be for all the people, 
no one is so far removed. I know you are lowly shepherds. You are not the power brokers in Israel, much less in Rome. You feel like you are forgotten. You are far away. You're not great like David. You're not great like Moses. You're not great like Abraham, but you are great in that the gospel comes to you. God has not forgotten you. That's what the angels bring the gospel to these shepherds. And then it references, this good news references the lamb. Notice in verses 11 and 12, today in the town of David, we're back to David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this is a sign you'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The gospel is this, the savior has been born and the savior is God himself. God is providing a lamb for himself. He is not sending someone else because even the mighty angel can't work salvation. No great man can work salvation. God himself is going to have to come. And the good news is God has come. The Savior is Christ the Lord. The Savior is the God who had appeared to Abraham, who had appeared to Isaac, who had come to Jacob, who had come to Moses and worked through him, the one who had appeared to David and saved David, that one has now come to us. And he's come to save us, not from the Roman boot, but from sin, from Satan, and from death. And the angel says, here's the sign. You're going to find the Savior. Now, how would we expect to find God when he shows up on the scene? What do we think he's going to come as? Riding it on a white horse or something, right? We think it's going to be like at the end of the book of Revelation. But the angel says to lowly shepherds, no, that's not actually what you're going to find. You're going to find a child. And you're going to find a child wrapped in cloths. And in fact, you're going to find him, even now that if your mind's wrapping around that, he's not going to be in the palace of Caesar. He's not going to be in the Roman Senate. You're not going to find him in even the house of Herod the Great or the chief priest. Where are you going to find him? In a manger. Because who's kept in a manger? The lambs. Where the lambs are kept, where the lambs are fed, you're going to find God in flesh. So the lowly shepherds hear that God has come in a lowly manner as a helpless child, not in a display of power. He's come in poverty, not like a king. In short, he comes as a lamb, not as a lion. That's what their announcement to the shepherds is. And that's because the lamb has come to offer salvation, not just to the rich and the powerful, but to all. He comes not to save the righteous, but to save sinners. And this is important for us. If I can say for just a moment, we, we need to understand there is a thing that runs deep in the Scripture. When Israel is in Egypt, are they the powerful or are they the oppressed? They're the oppressed. And when Israel um, is even in the promised land or, and then when they're gone off into exile, are they the powerful or are they the oppressed? And when Jesus comes, is Israel the powerful or the oppressed? And when the angels come with the announcement, do they come to the powerful or do they come to the oppressed? 
Now, I say this because it's important for us to understand living in 21st century America, we oftentimes do not. We, we have sanitized this message because to be quite honest, oftentimes we're the powerful, not the oppressed. And the powerful don't want to hear you're crooked deep down. The powerful don't want to hear that all your power and all your riches buy you nothing before a holy God. And so we, one of the reasons that we think these stories get old is because we have so sanitized them, the saccharine that they become does get old. There's no complexity to it because we're not even understanding what God has actually done. If you think you're Pharaoh, you don't think you need deliverance. But if you realize you're not, you recognize you do need deliverance. And if you realize who is coming, you know that even if you are Pharaoh, you do need deliverance. Because you can't stand before the one who comes. And so Jesus comes as a lamb because there is a reversal of fortunes. And I just, I encourage you, if you want to do some things this week along with continuing to read the devotionals, just read like Mary's words when she finds out that she's pregnant. Read Zechariah's words and find out if they're words about God coming to the rich and the powerful and the self-sufficient or if they are coming to those who are humble and crushed and cast out by society. And ask us what the gospel is and what it's a call to. I'll just leave it there and let us think about what that means. What does this mean for you and for me? First thing that it means is the story is true. This story that we rehearse and that we watch is true. God has provided for himself a lamb. And we are saved. The story is true. Death ravages the land because of our sin and rebellion, but God has provided the Passover lamb. And we are saved. The story is true. Even the best of us sin. And even the best of us are crooked, deep, down, but the Lamb has come, and we are saved. Friends, that is good news of great joy. And if the church, the church would embrace that, it would transform who we are and how we live. Good news of great joy. Not somebody else's crooked deep down, I'm crooked deep down. Not somebody else needs deliverance. I need deliverance. Not somebody else needs a lamb in their place. I need a lamb in my place. And that lamb that has come for me that is provided in my place, that Passover lamb whose blood is shed for me, that lamb that dies because I'm crooked deep down also dies for the one I don't get along with who's crooked deep down. It's good news of great joy for all people. Do we believe that? Do we grasp that? Do we speak that to others? 
that's the first thing. The story's true. Second thing is encouragement for those who feel far from God. As I was meditating and praying this week, one thing I want to emphasize to us, notice in this story, the announcement that the Lamb had come first came to lowly, despised, lonely shepherds. Think about it. I mean, you are, they're not rich and powerful. They're looked down upon. And what do you spend most nights doing if you're a shepherd? You're out and you're alone. It's the kind of thing, understand, St. Patrick, the guy we know as being the patron saint of Ireland, was actually not Irish. He was Roman citizen. And he had been kidnapped and carried to Ireland and made the lowliest of low slaves. And what did you do with the lowliest of low slaves? What was Patrick? He was a shepherd. Because you stuck him off in the middle of nowhere, whatever the weather was, and their companions were not other people. They were just sheep. It was in that that God called Patrick to go back. Well, he's doing the same thing here. The angels come to lowly, despised, and lonely shepherds. The Lamb comes not for the righteous, but for we who are crooked deep down. But notice, as I, as I shared, he also came after 400 years of silence, after the exile. And many of us have experienced a dark night of exile when God and his promises seemed far, far away. God had forgiven David and told David the covenant will continue, but as David's heirs continued to stray, Israel was sent off into exile, and we can't imagine the shattering that was to this people, because it appeared as if God's promises were not true. It appeared that God had not come for them. Many of us have also experienced the seeming silence of God when his voice of promise seems far away. 400 years. No prophet. The phrase that they had come to use was, all we have now is the bat kol, the daughter of the voice, what we would call an echo. The last prophet spoke. And we hear the word reverberating, and it's getting fainter and fainter. Have you ever been in a place where it seemed like God himself was silent? Don't wax religious on me. Because if, if you haven't, you haven't been paying attention. There is a dark night of the soul where The biggest problem is it's not that you don't know the truth, you don't know the promises, you haven't memorized the scriptures. It's just that it seems like God is no longer speaking. That's exactly where Israel was. It's exactly where those shepherds were. And I want to encourage you if you're in that spot. I'm not going to tell you that I can promise that that silence is going to end. I'm not in charge of that because you don't need to hear my voice. You need to hear the voice of God. But what I want to tell you is when Israel was in exile, God's word of promise had not failed. And when Israel lived in 400 years of silence, 
God's mouth had not fallen silent. His word of promise had not failed. The lamb was going to come. God himself would provide a lamb. The Passover lamb was going to be slain. Even those who were crooked deep down were going to be healed by God. And I want to encourage you, if you feel like you are in exile, behold the lamb of God. He has come for you. And if you feel like you are living in a place of silence, look to the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. He has come and he brings salvation with him. I want to encourage you, look to the Lamb of God and be encouraged. Whatever your situation and whatever your circumstance, and that is not to make light of your situation. There are folks that have to deal with deep, dark things. This is one of the reasons that a sanitized Christmas story offers no hope. If you think you're dwelling in a palace, life seems good. But when you're a lowly, despised shepherd, you need somebody to come and rescue. When you are under the boot of Pharaoh, you need a deliverer. And there are those who are here, I believe, that are struggling. And as I sought God this week, that was the the part I wanted to bring out today. We're not looking to a sanitized Christmas story. God has come, and he came for the lowly, and he came for the despised, and he came for the lonely, and he came for those who felt rejected and those who believed they dwelt in silence. The word came as a lamb to bring us to God. And I want to encourage you to do that. He's not come for someone else. He's come for you. And he comes in the midst of our difficulty. If the gospel is only good for when life is great and works well, if it's only the health and wealth prosperity thing, then let's shut this thing down. But thanks be to God, it's not that. God comes to us, not after we fix it, but when we recognize that it's broken and we can't fix it. So I want to encourage us to look to him because he's come not for someone else. He's come for you. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever I'm struggling with, he is not distant from you in your struggle. That is the greatest news of the incarnation. Why God did it the way he did, I'm not sure. I would not have gotten my hands this messy. But our God got his hands very messy because he is God with us. He is God for us because of the Lamb. And so whatever you're going through, whatever you struggle, I pray today you behold the Lamb. He has come, and because he has come, we are saved. Let's stand together and we're going to pray. And then we'll conclude with a word of benediction. Father, I thank you that the tale 
that we have rehearsed over this past month is true. Lord, I love some of the tales I get to read to my grandchildren. I love the stories we have made up and told. But Father, I don't love this story because of the contours and the tie-ins. I love this story because it's true. And because it's the greatest of all stories. And Father, I love this story because it's about you. And it's about what you have done. Father God, I am grateful that the story of Abraham and Isaac did not end with a knife plunged into the only son. I am grateful that the story did not end with Abraham providing his own lamb. But I'm grateful that on that mountain we learned on the mountain of the Lord, God will provide for himself a lamb. Father, I am grateful that the Passover story did not end with death for everyone. But that, Father, there was a remnant who looked to you. Not because of any righteous thing they had done. Not because of their power or wealth or anything in them. But because of the blood of the Passover lamb, they were saved and they were delivered. Father, I'm thankful that as we rehearse, it gives me hope that if the one you said was the man after your own heart, if even he struggled and sinned, and yet you forgave him, and you kept covenant with him, and you brought Messiah, the Lamb, even through him, Oh, Lord, that gives me hope. Jesus, I thank you that you came, not the way we would have designed it, not the way we would have done, but in a more glorious manner because it is so lowly and so unexpected. And Father, I pray for those who are struggling. Lord, I pray for those who feel like they are in exile those who feel like your voice has gone silent, those who feel like they are outside the loving care of God. Father, I pray that you would speak to them. I pray they would behold the Lamb. Father, they do not need my word, my voice, my touch or comfort as even though I hope all of those things would be there and would be a help, Father, what they really need is they need your voice. They need your presence. They need your comfort. Father, I pray for them as they behold the Lamb. Father, I pray that they would know, they would know, they would know that He has come and we are saved. They are saved that he did not come for someone else, he has come for them, and that it is good news, it is gospel, it is joy, because it is for all people, including us. Father, I pray you would work this deeply in us by your magnificent, powerful, holy spirit. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now may there be glory to God 
in the highest, and on earth peace to you on whom his favor rests through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who has taken away your sin. Go in the peace of God. Amen. I'll see everyone Christmas Eve. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. If you would like to support this ministry, please go to www.brcc.church and click the Give tab. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.